Michael Mopaga. I haven't got a clock, so it could go on a long time. Um, it's hard to speak after such extraordinary people have been up here and talked about Syria with such a connection and with it um, so movingly, really. I've never been to Syria. Um, so I'm the amateur here. What I gathered from everything I've heard today, which I knew before, but I don't think I ever realized it quite so well, uh, is the courage needed to witness, to bring back news that we don't want to hear, and to report on the worst possible side of conflict, which is usually and very often hidden from us. But it isn't all hidden. And the serious difficulty we have as a society, seems to me, is how we begin to tell this story to the young people who have already images in their heads of the result of what we've been hearing today. Whether we like it or not, children today will come across images that are so dreadful, um, we cannot imagine the effect on them at all. They have no understanding of such things, yet they see it. They see it on their telephones, they see it on their iPads. And this is the world they're growing up into. So when they see a baby being carried out of the rubble of a Syrian village, or when they see a child being carried along a beach in Greece, or Italy. They have to get their heads around, what is this? Is, is, is this fiction? Or do we just turn over to the Simpsons and forget it? What, what, what do you do? I can't go to Syria and do anything useful. The only useful thing I think people like me can do is tell the stories. I think you will, some of you will have seen a, a play of a book of mine called War Horse. Hands up if you have. You're less not enough. <laughs> there is a song in it. I'm not going to sing it, don't worry. But there's a line in it, which I wanted to begin my little talk with. Uh, a line in the song, which is the, uh, it, it's the beginning of the play, really. The line is, who'll sing the anthem? Who will tell the story? Someone has to sing the anthem. Someone has to tell the story if the people growing up today are to comprehend what this world is. What they see in newspapers and what they hear about the migration of people across the world is almost all negative. It's the back of lorries. Um, it's too many people coming in. There's a lot of fear going on. We are in this unbelievable situation in this country at the moment, largely because of a fear of being overwhelmed by migration. That had not been part of it. We would not be 
in this kerfuffle we are in at the moment. And it's one of these things which so hurts me because no one talks about the people concerned. They call them migrants. They call them asylum seekers. They're people. And we've just witnessed wonderful people here today who've been out there in Syria. And they know their people. They've dealt with the flesh and the blood and the mothers and the fathers. And yet what happens is that those that do survive, very often, try to escape. Well, why wouldn't you? They go. Let's get out of here. I don't want bombs. I don't want to see this anymore. I want to go somewhere safe. Where's safe? Where's safe? They know about it. They've seen it on their, on their phones. England. It's safe. It's really safe. We'll go there. Someone else has gone there. We've got an uncle who's gone there. Let's go there. And they set off. Imagine the courage that that takes to set off and go to a totally unknown place across the sea. And they just set off on the journey. And when they get here, if they get here, how do we treat them? What happens to them? The reason I, I write about this, the reason I care about it, is because I happen to have come across um, places and incidents which I've never forgotten. I once discovered a place called Jarl's Wood, which is a detention center for asylum seekers somewhere in the east of England. And I went to visit it. There were children in there, families. Some of them were in there for months on end, months on end, with barbed wire all around, waiting to be sent back to Iraq, to Afghanistan, wherever. That was their last impression of this country. Some of them had been living here six years. They were in English schools, Scottish schools, and they'd been swept up by some van early in the morning. Don't think it doesn't happen here. It does. Taken away and then put in these places. Well, that one was closed down, but the thing still happens. And you cannot imagine the effect this has on those children. They had committed no crime, and they're in prison. Effectively, they're in prison. In my country, we have been putting children in prison because they came here with their parents, but it wasn't thought right that they should stay. We haven't got room, apparently. We haven't got room. I want to tell you something, which some of you will know, some of you won't know. That in 1914, at the beginning of the First World War, 240,000 Belgians got in boats when their country was invaded, and they came to this country. They got out of their boats, and the people in this country then did not say, I'm sorry, our schools are very full, our hospitals are very full. We can't keep you, go home. Go back where you came from. No, nothing like that. They took them in. They didn't know the war was going to last four years and most of those Belgians would go home again. They took them in. They did go to our schools. They did go to our hospitals. And when I compare that kind of, I suppose it's not generosity, it's simple humanity. Someone is in need. And people here then responded. Well, people are in need now, in massive numbers. Why? Because there is starvation, there is global warming, there is unbelievable violence and war going on in the world, and people are running for safety. And they come to us, many of them. I went, and this is what 
makes me, I suppose, more agitated about it. I went to a place um, called the Jungle. Some of you will remember it, which was set up outside Calais, where there are about 3,000 or so um, men, mostly boys and men, young men. And they lived in this camp. You all know about it. Squalid, squalid camp, with barbed wire all around, with French police in bunches of 12 and 20, walking up and down, heavily armored, with rifles. And there were these boys, and they were living in plastic tents, and the place smelt of shit, and the mud was everywhere. It was hell on earth. And what did they try to do every night? They tried to get on lorries, they tried to uh, get in buses, anything they could, just get to England, get to England, get to England. That's what they wanted to do. And if French police caught them, they would beat them up. I, I sat there once in one of these little plastic places, and there was a boy lying there, bleeding from being beaten up by the French police the night before. Um, well, what can you do? What can you do? And what we did, which was absurd, two or three friends of mine who had come to look at this, and Claire, my wife, we sat there, and all we could do was to sit in a circle inside this plastic tent. And we joined arms, because that was, it seemed right somehow. And we sang. Well, that's not true. They sang. They sang their songs. And actually, we are not very good at breaking into song. We can only do Land of Hope and Glory and stuff. And it wouldn't have worked. But we did sing this, and we did sing that. And it was a wonderful moment, which did them no good at all, except to know that there were other human beings on this planet who did come from the country they wanted to go to, who were linking arms with them, and trying somehow to say, we are with you in this journey that you're doing. There was a wonderful theater group there who were making a play with them. They were trying to bring some life and, and light to their lives. Part of our problem is we, we really don't know our history in this country. We don't know, we don't remember because we don't want to remember that migration has gone on forever and a day just to mention one or two others, which you will know all about, but we forget about. We, they don't come into our knowledge anymore, really. I mean, in the middle of the 19th century, there was a potato famine in Ireland. The people had to leave because they were starving, and they went to America, they went all over the world. That was migration. Migration, which was an Irish migration, to find a place to be. There's something, again, we may, may have forgotten, is that we sometimes have sent away people we don't want anymore to other countries. 1945, 6, 7, we in this country were sending thousands upon thousands of children to the other side of the world because we didn't want them anymore. They were migrants. We were being migrants. This has gone on and on and on, and now we're living in this time, and we have to deal with the history of it. Well, I try to write stories which touch on it. I wish I had, and I don't have, this extraordinary intimate knowledge. Actually, I don't think I wanted it. I couldn't cope with it. I couldn't cope with living what these people have seen. I'm not strong enough. But what I can do is to try to tell the tale for people today, because I want this new generation of young people to be aware of how lucky they are in this country. Everyone. Now, yes, we have our poverty, but everyone compared to these people is lucky, lucky, lucky. And we have to know that. And we have to know and feel that these people are important and they're there for us to help because they need help. 
So I write stories. I'm not a preacher. I love writing stories, telling stories. But I want them to be able to finish the book and really think about it and worry about it. Yes, dream about it too. I try not to write stories which are full of gloom and doom, but you have to get, get it clear that the children have to understand how it must be to be desperate. I've just written a book which I think you can go and buy outside. Um, it's very, very cheap. But anyway, don't get it because I'm going to read you, but you'll know whether it's worth getting in a minute anyway. Um, it's called Boy Giant, and the reason I wrote Boy Giant was because of a wonderful, wonderful Irish writer, the guy who wrote Gulliver's Travels. He was called Jonathan Swift. And Jonathan Swift, as you know, well, you may not know, and I'm telling you, he told everyone he wrote this book because he wanted to vex people. I think that's a powerful reason for writing a book. And I wrote this. Um, I was asked to write, actually, a, a retelling of Gulliver's Travels. And I didn't want to do it. I waited the moment, waited the moment. And that image of that boy being carried along the beach, I can't remember if it's Italy or Greece, it doesn't matter. I just saw that and I thought, don't just do a retelling of Gulliver, Gulliver's Travels. Be vexed like Jonathan Swift. Write something which is going to remind us all of how the world is for, for these people. The difference between what we have and they don't have. The corruption, the war, which is what Jonathan Swift was writing about. But do it not for a sailor from 250 years ago. He's not the hero of this Gulliver. Write it for the son of Gulliver. And that's what I did. I'll just read you a bit. I know I'm not supposed to read it. It's against the rules, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, I'll just tell just a tiny, tiny bit, tiny, tiny bit. This is the beginning of it. He's called Omar, and he lives in Afghanistan. And he's telling his story in a very strange way, on the sea, in a boat, to an English girl um, who's rowing around the world. How they meet, I'm not going to tell you. You'll have to buy the book and find out. But here's his story, just the beginning of it. Where I come from is no longer my home. There was a house and a village I once called my home in Afghanistan. I had a family of my own once. Not anymore. I have my name, Omar, and I have mother, but I don't know where she is. I think and hope she may be in England with Uncle Said. I was on my way to find her. That's why we were out here on our little boat when you found us, and we found you. I don't know anymore what day or month or year it is, but I think I must now be about 16 years old. Of my beginnings, of my home, there is not much to tell, and I do not like to speak of it or think of it, because it makes me sad to remember. My home was a quiet place in a peaceful town in the countryside. We lived on the edge of town. My father was a shepherd. Our flock was our livelihood. We never went hungry or thirsty. I had a little sister, Hanan. She and I were much loved in our home. We were together. We were all happy. School was school. All my friends were there. We learned our lessons, played together, but I was always small and thin, and at school I was never allowed to forget it. Tiny, they called me. Little I may have been, but I was by far the best at cricket. No one hit the ball harder, no one bowled faster. The pitch was always bumpy, but it was the same for all of us, and it was fine. Everything was fine. 
I could read the bounce of every ball they bowled at me, see it under the bat. I lived for my cricket and my family. Everything was good. Every night I went to sleep wishing I could score more runs the next day or take more wickets. And I prayed I would be a little taller in the mornings. I would measure myself against the mark mother had made on the wall. And the next day I would often score more runs or take more wickets or both, but I was never any taller. Hanan was still taller than me every morning and she was two years younger than me. Then the war came to our town and I had other worries, more serious worries. I do not know to this day why the war came. It was on the morning of my 10th birthday, I remember. We heard the planes in the sky and then the bombing began. We were in school. There was nowhere to hide, nowhere to run to. At the end of that day, our home was in ruins, our school too. Many of my friends had died. I was there when they were buried. I helped to bury them. Father died too when the planes came again the next morning. Anyway, that's the beginning of the story. But I wanted really to try to tell the tale, the beginning of why this boy got in a boat with lots of other people. His mother couldn't get in the boat with him because she didn't have anything more to sell, so he had to go on his own. He, he had a, one thing in his mind. His mother said, just remember where Uncle Said is and keep these words in your head, keep these words in your heart. Four Street, Mevagissi. Four Street, Mevagissi. Four Street, Mevagissi. Just remember that, and Uncle Said will be waiting for you. And the whole journey, his whole visit to Lilliput is part of it. But anyway, it's a, it's a book I, I, I love because I've just written it and because it, it means a lot to me. Um, I think I've got to finish in a minute because I haven't got this clock. But I wanted to bring, sort of bring it away from Syria and Afghanistan to the kind of cruelty that I grew up with in stories, the biggest story of human offense against other human beings for me when I was growing up was the Holocaust. And I knew perfectly well that many, many Jewish people had come to this country, not enough because we didn't let many of them in, but they came here. And I got to know one of them very well. Um, she came over here just before the war because her father was a journalist and when Hitler came to power in 1933 he knew and everyone knew that he would be one of the first to be taken. So this little girl um, and her mother escaped and they went to Switzerland and they went to France and they eventually came to England. And she grew up to be an extraordinary author called Judith Carr. She wrote Tiger Who Came to Tea. <laughs> she was a migrant uh, who uh, did us quite a lot of good one way or another. And that, that story and the story of what happened to the Jewish people, um, I, I'm, I've always held it hard here because it's just so important we understand the depth of evil to which the human race can sink. I go to France quite a lot. And the reason I go is I know the history very well. I have a a French family over there. And I know what we all know, that France was occupied in that war, Second World War. They've been occupied also, part of it in the First World War as well. They know what it is to be humiliated, to have jackboots walking around in their streets. We don't, which is another interesting difference between us and every other country in Europe besides Switzerland. And anyway, I visited by accident a little village with my wife called Lesquin in the Pyrenees, tiny little place, 80 people, 100 people. 
And I was told a story there by the mayor of the village about an, a lady, a widow, living high in the mountains during the occupation. Um, and they didn't know about it. This man told me, he was a boy, he was about 11 when the Germans came. He said, we didn't even know it was going on until after the war. But this woman had had the same courage as the people we've been listening to this evening. She decided it was her job to make sure that Jewish children being sent down through the safe house system in France, helped by the resistance, had a place to be before they could be taken over the mountains into neutral Spain. And I went and saw this house, and I heard the story. She saved hundreds and hundreds of lives. I wrote a book about it. I called it Waiting for Anya. And this has just been made into a film, um, which I think is coming out in February. There's a wonderful thing that happened down there. We went to see it. And they got a shepherd's choir down there singing the songs from the Bayon. Um, very often, um, there'd be 50 or 60 of them singing in a church. And it sounded like the great Welsh choirs or the great Russian choirs, this wonderful, wonderful sound. I'm going to sing you a song now, which I wrote the words to. The words are incredible. The song is completely traditional. It's the, it should be sung in the Bayon with a nice glass of wine in your hand and some nice cheese and ham. We've had none of that this evening. It's a very ungenerous place. Um, but I thought I'd sing you this song because it has the spirit of what I've been talking about. And you, when you see the film, you, the music is divine. I can only have a little stab at it, but I'll, I'll do my best. I'll have a drink first. Water anyway. It's awful, this place. It's an it's interesting song. It is the football song of Toulouse Football Club. Does anyone here support Toulouse? No. Here it is. Oh, where have you come from? And where will you go? We can keep you and hide you. But where will be home? We can't be your papa, nor your mama so dear. We can comfort and hold you, keep you safe from all fear. Lie low in your stable, and don't breathe a word. Be silent. Be still now, no sound must be heard. One night under moonshine, with the world still in sleep, we shall take you and lead you over mountains so steep. Oh, follow in our footsteps where sheep softly go. Step gentle as hares do as we tread through the snow. And no one will harm you. We shall make sure of that. We can walk hand in hand there and never look back to the stars we are going. Our hearts full of hope. You can laugh Skip and sing then as you make your way home. Go home to your papa, to your mama so dear. 
They'll be watching and waiting. No more sorrow, no more fear. Oh, where have you come from? And where will you go? We can keep you and hide you. But where will be home? Thank you.